0: Good morning, church. You have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. First Thessalonians, it feels weird not to say turn with me to Romans after 29 weeks, but First Thessalonians, we start a brand new book this morning, and we're going to look at the letter that Paul writes as we head into the Advent season. It's hard to even say that that's coming around the corner, but we are getting close to Advent season, and this study should carry us through the end of the year. Uh, Paul's writing to a church that he founded, and the first time we come in contact with this church is in the book of Acts. Paul had previously been in the city of Philippi, where he had been uh, doing ministry. He cast out a demon of a slave girl, and when he did that, the owners of the slave girl, they got a little upset, and so they caused um, him and Silas to be thrown into prison, and um, we read about that in Acts chapter 16. So as you're turning there, let me read this to you. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. They were there, and this is when the Philippian jailer came to the Lord. He came in, and it says this in verse 29, And the jailer came, called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so from here, after being released, Paul and Silas travel to Thessalonica. They spend three weeks there teaching in the synagogue. Acts 17, 5 through 7, we read this, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. And attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. From here, Paul and Silas leave. And they go to Berea. It says here in verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So they were forced then to leave and go to Athens. And then from Athens, where there was little response to the gospel to Corinth. And now Paul is riding back to this church from Corinth. So not a lot of time has passed, maybe a few months since the church had been founded in Thessalonica. And so this is more than likely one of the first letters ever penned by Paul in the New Testament. This letter was written probably 20 years after Jesus had died and rose again. And it's one of the earliest that we can find. And it is, it is consistently talking about Jesus' return. And so we're going to call this Living in Light of His Return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I hope I gave you enough time. If you found one T, you can find them all. Here we go. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast of hope so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that was penned not long after your ascension. Father, we pray that as we look at the words that are written by Paul to a church, that we as your church, as your body, would receive them with power and conviction by the Holy Spirit. That you would penetrate deep into our hearts and that you would give us a longing an affectionate longing for your return, that we would look for you, that we would long for you, and that we would live in light of that return. Father, today, convict us of sin, change our hearts even as we have sang, take away our love of sinning, and produce in us an obedience that we cannot produce in ourselves by the work of your Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace and your peace. In Christ's name, amen. Are you living in light of his return? What a great question. Are you living in light of his return? Well, I mean, maybe a better question is do you believe that Jesus Christ will return? Yes. Amen. Martin Luther said there's two days on my calendar this day and that day, today and the day that he returns. Mark Howell says there are two great independence days in the lives of Christians. The day that you follow Jesus Christ and are set free from the penalty of sin and the day that you understand the present implications of your salvation. Wow, living in light of his return. Jesus, who was taken up into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Acts 1.11 So the question remains, what would change about your life if you believe that Jesus was going to return today? Have you heard this question before? Well, it's not a really a fair question because you probably wouldn't do anything that you had any responsibilities. You would just, well, tomorrow, I'm not going to have these responsibilities, but what if I change the question, and I say, what would change in your life if you lived as if he was going to return in your lifetime? If you knew that there, that day was going to come at some point in, in your lifetime, then I'm pretty sure that things would change. There would be more urgency You would live with fervency and faith. You would have an eternal purpose in the conversations that you have. And you would be longing for his return. In Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is teaching, verse 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, i say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we read sections of Scripture like this, we need to be aware that He will come. He will come. He will return. He will come at a time where we may not expect it. So are we living in light of His return? Well, as Paul gets into this, he writes to a church that has dramatically changed over the course of the last two months. As he had come there and as he has taught and then has been pushed out, now he gets word back that this church is growing in its sanctification. That it is obvious that these people have been chosen by God, have been saved, and now their lives are lived as if they cannot wait on Jesus' return. And so a living, so living in light of his return is a life full of faith, hope, and love. Again, Paul Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What a great opening to a letter to the church, to the gathered body of believers that are meeting in this town, to those who have been chosen by God, who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul is even opening the letter, he's he's addressing the fact that the church is not just a gathering of people, not just an assembly of people, but this is a people who are in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what Paul is doing is he is establishing the spiritual union of believers to the essential truth that Jesus Christ is God, God in the flesh. As Richard Phillips says, by placing Jesus alongside God the Father, Paul emphasizes the full deity of Christ. This expression penned a mere 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection identifies the deity of Christ as an essential article of faith for believers. Paul further notes the deity of Jesus by referring to him as Lord. The title Kuros or Lord was used in Greek translation of the Old Testament for Yahweh. The personal and covenant name that God has revealed to his people in Exodus 3. This divine name is now given to Jesus. As Lord Jesus is sovereign over his people. As Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one, Jesus is the Savior who has a, who has atoned for our sins and reconciled us to God. With Jesus as Lord and Savior, the church is to respond obediently to Christ's word through his apostles, relying on his saving work as the grounds of the blessings from God and drawing near to him as the source of their vitality and joy. Some 20 years has passed. Now, if you're older, let me ask you, do you remember 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I still feel like I'm in my 20s, right? I still think like I'm in my 20s and then I do something that my body reminds me that I'm not in my 20s anymore, but I just feel like that was that was like a couple of weeks ago, right? So as Paul's writing this letter, he's writing to a church that knows that Christ ascended into heaven just 20 years ago. He could be coming back any moment. And not only is is he Jesus, the Messiah, he's Yahweh, he's God, God in the flesh, and we are awaiting his return. As you think about a letter to a church, we drive past churches all the time, and we look at churches and we look at the building. We may look at the sign and see what they wrote on there to see if it's funny or not funny. We might look at the service times and see what kind of services they have. We might look and see what kind of programs they're doing. We might look at all kinds of things. But let me, let me ask you, when was the last time you drove past a church and you thought, that is the body of Christ in God, in Christ Jesus. They are a gathered body of believers awaiting the return of their Savior. What a beautiful thought. Grace to you and peace grace, the unmerited gift of God by which we are saved and sustained, which gives us peace, the result of salvation, knowing that we have peace with God and we are no longer instruments of his wrath. We give thanks to God always, verse 2, for you all, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, praying here, rejoicing, giving thanks to God for what he has heard about this church. And he gives us three confirmations of how the word was delivered to the church, but also three confirmations of the conversion that went on at that church. Number one, a work of faith. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the faith chapter, and I just want to read through a bit of it, but I want to to present to you the fact that as you talk about a biblical faith, a biblical faith is a faith that produces good works. It is a fruitful faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we are in Christ for good works. So faith produces works. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 4, by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God has, had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that that he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked Future blessing on Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict verse 24 by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater uh, of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt and he was looking to the reward verse 27 by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeking him who is invisible Verse 28, "'By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them.'" Verse 29, "'By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned.'" Verse 30, "'By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days.'" 31, "'By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies.'" Let's keep going. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, uh, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the powers of hell, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and of the earth. By faith. By faith. By faith. If your faith is not producing in you an obedient work, then what you have may not be faith, it may simply be a religious front. People of genuine biblical faith are awaiting his return with fruitful anticipation. In light of all Christ has done in you and for you, and in light of the truth of his return, what is the appropriate life? A life of faith. D.L. Moody says, We work from the cross, but not towards it. Because of what Christ has done in our hearts and our life, our faith then works. Be a labor of love. I love the idea of this imagery. Every time I hear the word labor, I think about Birth the giving of birth the miracle of life the the labor that the wife has to go through the 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 time that is spent there whether it's a couple of hours or a lot of hours or maybe a day I don't know I mean it just I, guys we get to go get something to eat and come back check in see how it's going but it's a labor it's blood sweat and tears it's agony Alexander McLaren says, Love labors. Labor is more than work, for it includes the notion of toil, fatigue, difficulty, persistence, antagonism. Ah, the work of faith will never be done unless it is the toil of love. All the things I've just said about the work of faith are impossible without a labor of love. The basis of our faith is, is the love of God. Love leads us towards obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, is what he says in John 14, 15. The faithful work of a believer is from the love of God that is placed in their hearts. Love moves us to a faithful work of obedience. We labor for the Savior because of the overwhelming love that we have for Christ. Leon Morris says this, I want you to hear this, God loves us. Not because we are worthy, nor even as some think, because he sees in us possibilities yet unrealized. God loves us, although he knows full well our complete unworthiness. He loves, moreover, without thought of advantage, for there is nothing that we can bring to him who made all things. He loves because his nature is to love. He loves because he is love. If you love him, you'll obey him. And that love that you have might be a labor of love. It might be blood, sweat, and tears awaiting the birth of a promise, awaiting the return of Christ. If you love him, you will long for him. If you love him, you will live in light of his return. And three, the steadfastness of hope. The steadfastness of hope, the evidence of the true believer is that they long for the return of their king. R.C. Trench says this does not mark merely endurance or even patience but the perseverance, the brave patience with which the Christian contends against the various hindrances, persecutions and temptations that befall him in his conflict with the inward and outward world. The mark of a believer, someone who's received the word of God is that their faith endures. That Steadfast hope, assurance. They long for Christ to make things whole. As the next chapter in Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. This is steadfastness of hope, that we look to Christ. And what really matters Richard Phillips says, is a church of faith, love, and hope. Faith rising from the ministry and practice of God's word. Love flowing from Christ through the fellowship of the church members. And hope that brings joy and zeal for witness to a hostile world. This is the kind of church that we should desire to be. And that we can become as we consciously live before God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the church that Paul is writing to. Number two, living in light of his return is a life full of gospel conviction and Christian example. Living in light of his return is a life full of gospel conviction. Let's start with that one. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul says, we know that you are saved, we know that you are chosen because the gospel came to you and it didn't just come in words, it came to you with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it produced a full conviction, a full assurance by the life that happens after your receiving of Christ. Here Paul addresses the church as those who are saved, who are called, who are chosen by God. Paul is Giving us this clear indication that salvation is the sovereign election and work of God on those whom He has predestined and He's foreknown, by placing His love upon them before the foundations of the world. That by hearing the gospel and having its living word penetrate to the heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, produces in them an assurance of Christ's finished work on their behalf and the conviction of sin, resulting in the confession of faith and believing in Christ. All of this happens as God leads us from death life. What a remarkable statement as he writes to this church that I am assured of your salvation because of what I've seen in your life. This is best illustrated by the parable of the sowers, right? The seed is sown, it's thrown out, the gospel goes out, goes forth, and sometimes it lands on hard soil. And it's quickly snatched away. Sometimes it's received with joy, but there's no room for the root, so it Quickly dissipates. Some receive it and it begins to grow, but also all the other cares and loves of the world grow up around it and choke it out. But there's a fruitful soil that hears the word and reproduces some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. There is a fruitful faith that comes out of it. This is the church that Paul writes to. I've seen the fruit that has come out of your conversion. So the conviction here is the assurance, but also I want to mention the conviction that we have of sin. If we claim to be a believer, but can still live in accepted sin without any conviction, then it's proof that we're not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're living in accepted sin without any remorse, then it's clear that you're not living in light of his return. Because if he were to return and find you living in accepted sin, is that how you'd want him to find you? I'd venture to say, there are some here today who hear my voice, who if I asked them, are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ, they would say yes. But inside, they would be met with a fear Knowing that they're living in sin and trying to justify it, or they've become so callous to it that in certain circles they'll boast about their disobedience and presume on the grace of God. My prayer is that the Word of God would meet you with the power of the Holy Spirit. They would meet your hearts today, bringing full conviction and full assurance to your life that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, the King, to whom we bow. B, living in light of his return is a a life full of Christian witness. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word and much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I love this. Paul's like, listen, we had all these plans, but your faith is so contagious and you're being such an example that you're being a witness in places we've not even made it to yet. It's gone out everywhere. The church here was following the example of Paul. And Paul being the one in 1 Corinthians 11 1, who said, be imitators of me as I follow Christ, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, how many of us in here would be willing to say that to someone? Hey, you know what? Just follow my example as I follow Christ. As your pastor, not sure I'm, I'm ready to say that to you. I'm sorry. But I'm not real sure I'm ready to say, hey, just follow my example. Spurgeon says a Christian should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. We should be pictures of Christ. Oh, my brethren, there is nothing that can so advantage you, nothing that can so prosper you, so assist you, so make you walk towards heaven rapidly, so keep your heads towards, uh, upwards towards the sky and your eyes radiant with glory like the imitation of Jesus Christ. This was a church that had a witness of being Christ-like. Christian, let me ask you, who are you imitating? Who are you trying to pattern your life after? What kind of examples are you looking to? What kind of example are you to other believers? What kind of example are you to the unbelievers that you interact with? Parents, you want to make disciples, don't just tell your kids what the Bible says. Live it out in front of them. You and I are making disciples not by just what we say we believe, but by how we live what we believe. This was the church. The church Paul writes to you just some two months after being there, he's like, listen, the, the word on the street is that you look like Jesus. You act like Jesus. You are are examples to everyone. It's my prayer that we would be that. That as people see our lives, that we live in light of His return, they would look at us and go, and they're not perfect, but man, they look a lot like Jesus. They act a lot like Jesus. If there is one person that I know that's a Christian, it's that person, because look at their life. Living in light of His return is living like Him until He returns. And it is impossible without Christ in us. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. What, a, what an awesome thing that it sounded forth. It was loud. The church of the Thessalonians was known for its example. It was a gospel-spreading, God-serving, Christ-mimicking congregation that was being used by God all around the community. Living in light of his return is a life full of turning, serving, and waiting. Turning, serving, and waiting. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what we've been saved from. Yeah, we've been saved from our sins, but we've also been saved from the wrath to come. You want to know why believers can look forward to the return of Jesus Christ? Because He's not, he's not returning for wrath against us. God's wrath has been poured out on His Son on, on our behalf. John Stott says, without the turning, serving, and waiting, one can scarcely claim to be converted. So turning, turning from idols. Early Christians, they understood this. They understood that to become a Christian, they had to turn away from their old life and live a completely different life. This might be lost in some of our cultures today. They understood that they had to turn away from their old self and be completely new identities in Christ Jesus. That they had to turn away from the things that they worshipped, the culture that they were in, to worship Christ and Him alone. Tim Keller says each culture is different dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas, and gyms, studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of a good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mystic proportions in our individual lives and society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of aphrodite but many young women today are driven into despair and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image we may not actually burn incense to artemis but when money and career are raised to cosmic portions we perform a kind of child sacrifice neglecting the family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain a more wealth and prestige Idols are simply that person, that thing, or that idea that you cannot live without and cannot have a desired identity without. It drives you to misery because you cannot be satisfied by it. It drives you to anxiety because you obsess over it. It drives you to destruction because you sacrifice other relationships to have it. Idolatry is simply spiritual slavery. It's a spiritual addiction that destroys your soul. The early church turned from their idols to serve God. Because you will serve something. You will serve something. You'll either sacrifice others to serve an idol for your satisfaction, or you'll sacrifice yourself to serve God. And Luke 9, 23, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. John Calvin says, No one, therefore, is properly converted to God but the man who has learned to place himself wholly under the subjection of him. Who do you serve? Let me ask you, what has your praise? What has your time? What has your money? What has your interest? What has your affection? What do you sacrifice for? What are you in the service of? Did Christ make the list of any of those? They were turning from idols to give their lives in service to the Lord. And when you turn from idols and you begin to turn your life towards serving the Lord, you know what happens? The world notices because it is not like the rest of the world. And the reason we do that is because we are awaiting our Savior. Awaiting on Christ and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thessalonian Church was a group of gospel-spreading, God-serving believers who were persuaded that Christ could return at any moment to bring the fullness of their salvation. Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ will return? Do you believe it could happen at any moment? Are you living in light of his return? Hmm. William Hendrickson says, when you await a visitor, you have prepared everything for his coming. You have arranged the guest room, the program of activities, your time and your other duties, and all this in such a manner that the visitor will feel perfectly at home. Over the next few months, we're going to be hosting a lot of visitors, am I right? You You might be a visitor in someone's home. You might be welcoming in family, getting the room ready, preparing the meal, putting the turkey in right on time so it'll pop out right, right at the right time. Right? You've got to plan it all out. Everything's got to be perfect. I'm ready for their arrival. He goes on and says, So also, awaiting the very Son of God who is coming out of the heavens implies the sanctified heart and life. If you're ready for Christ's return, it's because your life has been laid on the altar. Turning for models, serving God, and waiting on his return. I ask you again today, are you ready for his return?